The reading is taken and can be found on page 180. Well, it starts on 182 in the Church Bibles. It's Colossians chapter 1, verses 24, and then chapter 2 to verse 5. Paul's labor for the church. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has kept been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, sorry, wrong, and for all those who have not met me personally, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. This is the word of God. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us through your word, the Bible. And we pray, Lord, that you will continue to speak to us through it this morning. We pray, Lord, that you will have a powerful and deeply relevant message for each one of us this morning to take away and act upon. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as Guy mentioned, we're, we're flying solo now in one sense. Uh, Charles officially uh, retired on Wednesday. Uh, Guy and ML and Iona and I had a great breakfast with him and Tricia, uh, rather incongruously, I thought, at the botanist bar in Sloan Square, but there you go. They're on great form, I'm pleased to say, and um, 
Very sad to be moving on from St. Michael's, but excited about their new life in Oxford. So as we prepare for our next vicar, Charles's successor, what can we imagine that they would like to see at St. Michael's? What kind of a church are they hoping to find here? Does size matter? Does the church's financial position matter? Is the profile of the church important? What should really matter to them? And as candidates hear about St. Michael's and investigate us and think about whether this is the church for them, what will they learn about us? Now, Paul was in a very similar situation with the church in Colossae. He'd never been there. Uh, The church was about 100 miles from Ephesus, where Paul had been ministering and had, we believe, brought to Christ uh, Epaphras, who earlier on in this letter, uh, Paul mentions is the person who brought the Christian faith to the church in Colossae. So he probably knew a bit about the church from Epaphras and from others who had been travelling backwards and forwards between Ephesus, which was on the coast, and Colossae, which was, as I say, about 100 miles inland and therefore needed that coastal town. Both of them, by the way, are in modern-day Turkey. Let's just flick back for a minute to the beginning of Paul's letter to the Colossians to see what he had to say about the church there. So, Kassa, and thank you for reading to us, Kassa, read to us from page 1183. If we looked at the previous page, 1182, we learn this in verse 3 of chapter 1 about Paul's thinking of the church in Colossae. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. So if you like, that's the context for Paul's perspective on the church in Colossae. This is week two of a four-week sermon series where we're diving into the letter and the uh, overall title for the sermon series is Church as God Intends. So the question we're exploring over these four weeks is, what does God intend for his 
church. Well, let's, before we get into today's passage, let's just look once more at the beginning of the letter, where in one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Paul sets out his vision for the church. So if you would look with me at verse 9 of chapter 1, Paul says of them, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. I absolutely adore that phrase, uh, living a life worthy of the Lord. And I'm going to just try and take us forward a bit this morning in thinking about what that might mean for us today, living a life worthy of the Lord. Before we do that, it might be worth just reflecting for a minute on Paul and his ministry. I think a lot of people think of Paul as an evangelist solely, so someone whose real objective was just around sharing the gospel. It was so much more than that. It was discipling the churches, whether they were churches he was spending years with, some churches he spent up to three years with, or whether it was churches he hadn't even been to, such as the church in Colossae. And I think of Paul uh, a bit like a, a leader of an expedition to climb Everest. If you're the leader of that expedition, it's no good you just powering on by yourself to get to the top of the mountain and saying to everyone else who's in your group, come on now, you've seen where I've gone, just follow me. It's so much more than that, isn't it, folks? It's putting the ropes and the footholds up the way, up the mountain. It's laying down the supplies and the oxygen. And it's watching over each member of the party that's trying to climb Everest and it's caring for each one of them and thinking about where each one of them is at. And that's what Paul was doing for the churches in his day. And that's what we see in today's passage he was seeking to do for the church in Colossae. If you turn with me to uh, verse 28 of our passage... We see there, Paul, he is the one we proclaim, Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And to this end, Paul says, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So that is Paul. That is his aspiration. That is what he's striving for as he seeks to disciple the churches of his day. 
And that's what his desire is. Not only that we live a life worthy of Jesus, but that we might be presented fully mature in Christ. And I want us to spend some time now thinking about what that fully mature in Christ might look like for you and for me today. What are the components of that? Well, as we look at this passage in verse 27, so just before we were looking, just before what we read, we see that Paul describes that maturity as partly Christ in you. Christ in you. Now you'll know that Jesus spoke a lot about Christ in us. And you'll know that Jesus was very clear that after he had gone to the Father in heaven, he was leaving the Holy Spirit with us to be him, Jesus, in us. Turn with me, if you would, back to page 1082. So page 1082. And there, in, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, at verse 15, we read, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. My friends, it's binary. Once we become a Christian, Jesus is in us. It's not a partial thing. It's not a how much is Christ in you. It's an absolute thing. He is in us, black or white. So I should say black and white. He is there. Jesus is in us. And I might just say, um, I always worry a bit when we pray for God to be with us or we pray for God to be with such and such a person as they go through a challenge. We have God's promise from the Bible. He is with us. Jesus is in us. And I would encourage us to cling onto that as our first mark of maturity today, knowing and resting on Christ in us. Turning back to today's passage, uh, again at the end of verse 27, uh, the riches of his mystery, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. I want to spend a bit of time now in this phrase, the hope 
of glory. The Apostle Peter put it like this. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. For me, this is about us seeking to live our lives in an eternal context. And I think we can look, about this, look at this in two ways. Firstly, as a consequence of that, how do we feel about our lives? What's our attitude towards our lives? And secondly, how do we live our lives? Are we living them in the here and now as if all we can see, touch, feel around us is all that there is? Or are we living them in that eternal context? It's a bit like if you've got a telescope. Have you got the telescope the right way round? Have you got it the way round that shows you the distance, that shows you the galaxies? Or have you got it the wrong way round, where you're just looking in ridiculous, inappropriate detail at what's going on now and seeing nothing? So let's think a bit about uh, what it is to feel and to have an attitude based on the hope of glory. And I do apologise, I'm getting you to spin through lots of different bits of uh, the Bible here, but if you could possibly bear with me and turn to page 1161, uh, that's page 1161, Uh, In Paul's uh, second letter to the church in Corinth, uh, in chapter 4, verse 16, we read the following. Paul saying this, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Uh, I mentioned earlier how I love that phrase uh, from the first chapter of, uh, uh, of Colossians about living a life that's worthy. Well, I also love this phrase of fixing our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. And I would really encourage us all. That's a very simple prayer that, that we can be praying. It's a very simple thing that we can be asking God to to help us to to fix our eyes on what is unseen rather than what is seen. Let me tell you, let me try to tell you uh, about uh, a friend of mine. Uh, He's not a member of this church, so I'll I'll use his real name, uh, which is the currently highly unfashionable name, apparently, of Nigel. I think hardly any, if no children were named Nigel, I think, this year. 
Uh, one reason for that being that he was born in the same year that I was born, so it's a very dated name. I've known him since I was five. We went to primary school together. Uh, I kept up with him till I was about 20. Uh, and then, as you do, I lost touch with him uh, until, unbeknownst to us, a mutual friend of ours sent a apparently random email to all of his friends telling them about this offer that Eurostar had for cheap tickets to Paris. I can't think for the life of me why Johnny sent that email to us, but he did. And Nigel read that email, and uh, in the uh, list of addresses, uh, he saw uh, an addressee, david.munns at, where was I working at the time? Pearson.com, I think it was. And so got in touch with, uh, with Johnny and said, is that the David Munns who, who was born in Epsom? Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, it was me. So Nigel reached out to me. By that stage, we were both in our early 30s. And we have remained friends for the last 20 years. When Nigel reached out to me, uh, he had not been working for four or five years. He had been a very successful corporate lawyer in the city uh, until he was literally struck down by ME uh, and passed out on the platform of Bank Tube Station one morning on his way into work and has since then spent the last 20 years unable to work. Since then, uh, a girl he was dating, Emma, uh, not long after they started dating, uh, was diagnosed with a brain tumour and very sadly passed away three or four years ago. Since then, Nigel has been diagnosed with liver cancer uh, and is fighting with that. But there is no one amongst my friends who has been a more shining example for living a life focusing on the unseen rather than the seen. Nigel has inspired me and he has inspired countless of our friends with an unshakable faith in the future, an unshakable holding fast to the promises that we've been looking at today. And they have given him a maturity in his brokenness that belie his earthly circumstances. And they gave Emma a maturity in the year that she was ill that was a shining example as well to the people in hospital who cared for her, to the hospice staff that she was with, as she and Nigel over and over again were able to say to those staff, it's not about what we can see now. It's about the eternal. If that's how we feel and our attitude to our life as we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. What about how we live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis? 
Well, of course, there's so much of that in today's passage about how Paul lived his life. If you would turn uh, back to today's passage uh, on uh, page 1182 and 1183, we read Paul writing, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up my flesh what is still, with what is still lacking in Christ's, to Christ's, in regard to Christ's afflictions. And we read in verse 29, to this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And then he goes on to say, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you. So Paul was giving his all for a church that he hadn't even met. If I think of the pillars that I stand my faith on, uh, the, the facts that I seek to present if I ever attempt to share my faith with non-Christians... One of those pillars is the transformation that took place in the disciples. We know that when they were with Jesus, they denied him when the going got tough. Peter did so. We know that they scrabbled and argued with each other about who was the greatest. We know that they doubted uh, who Jesus was and misunderstood who he was. But then we see them transformed by something. When Jesus had died and had risen again and had gone to the Father and had left his Holy Spirit with them, in them, making them completely different, we see Stephen the first martyr, willing to give up his life for what he believed. He must have earnestly believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Why else, so short a time afterwards, would he have willingly given up his life? Why else would he have done it with such forgiveness? Why else would he have done it in such a way which left Paul, then called Saul, who was standing there, watching him being stoned to death with something in his mind later on when he had that vision to think, well, hang on a minute. What was it about Stephen that caused him to die so willingly? And then down the ages from the disciples through the centuries, we see people over and over again living their lives based on this hope of glory. I think of Jonathan Edwards, the, uh, the preacher in the 18th century. I think he went to Yale at the age of 13. He was the principal, as I think it was called then, of uh, the forerunner of Princeton. And he had a very powerful ministry. Jonathan said this, this life ought to be spent by us only as a journey to heaven. 
I think of Jim Elliot, uh, the, the man who was martyred by Quechua Indians in South America, who a few years before he was martyred said, that man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I think of the guy whose uh, Bible reading notes I've used mm, pretty much sort of most of the time when I, uh, as my Bible study guide over recent years, a man called Selwyn Hughes, who was born the son of a Welsh miner in 1928 and who rose to have a worldwide uh, Bible teaching ministry, who said, only as we inhabit the larger world of God's sovereignty can we rise above the greatest confusions of the present day. So what will this look like for us individually uh, as we think about those marks of maturity, as we think about Christ in us, as we think about the hope of glory transforming our attitude to our life, transforming our actions. Let's just turn back if we may, to conclude to to verse 10, uh, to what I read at the beginning. (coughs) So that we may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Let's pray.